Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 318. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 318 you're listening to. My guest today is Seattle-based producer-engineer Andy D. Park. Andy has worked with Death Cab for Cutie, John Van Dusen, Kay Flay, The Deftones, Alice in Chains, Pearl Jam, and Soundgarden. He talks to us from his freshly built studio at his home in Seattle. Andy Park coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about spreading the work around. When you take on a project and you have an opportunity to spread a little bit of the work around, I think it is not only the right thing to do, it's the smart thing to do. Keeping everybody working in your audio community, no matter where you live, is a really good idea. Trying to be the one, the only, one-stop shop, only game in town, that just doesn't really bode well for the future. If you have a community that's made up of all various types of audio professionals, and that includes not just mixing, mastering, location, sound, you know, all, you know, all the different audio disciplines, but it can stretch out to the other things that complement what we do. Repair people, uh, you know, pro audio repair people, transfer people, and you know, that could even stretch over into graphics people if you want to, you know, take it another another step out. Think of it, think of it like a small street anywhere in the world, and you got maybe your, uh, you know, your butcher, your baker. Uh, yes, I'm going to say candlestick maker. I'm going to do the, do the rhyme. But you know, you've got all your people who, your all your artisans doing their different things. That could be somebody who deals in stained glass. Uh, that could be somebody who deals in woodwork. Now take that and move it into the world of audio. When you have all these different people doing their specialties, then when the customer comes along with a need, there is an opportunity there for everyone to work. Let's give an example. Let's say we have a client who has some old tapes and they want to transfer those tapes into the digital domain. They want to remix, remaster, repackage those tapes, the music on those tapes. Well, there's an opportunity for three, maybe four, people to be involved there. At minimum, let's just break it down into three for now. The tapes are going to probably need to be baked and the tapes are going to need to be transferred. That could be a one-person job. That could be a two-person job. Uh, I've had examples of that recently where I've sent somebody to one person for baking and another person for transfers because, you know, some people have certain tape machines. Some people have the baking capability and and there's an opportunity there for employing one or two people once it gets transferred it's going to need to go to the mix engineer right there's another one once it gets mixed it's going to need to get mastered no doubt and you could even like i said earlier you could take it as far as adding a graphics person in there so there is the potential there in that equation for possibly four possibly five right so imagine if your community is made up of a bunch of different people. Now, I'm not saying that you only have to have one mix engineer, but then again, 
there is the opportunity to spread the wealth, right? There's the opportunity to say, hey, I'm a rock person. I'm not going to do great on this hip hop track. I'm going to refer it over to this other person who's going to mix a hip hop track. And then they're going to refer it to a mastering engineer that feels like they're qualified to do that. Any opportunity you can to refer people, to spread the wealth, to make sure that other people in your community are working is a great thing. If you're if you're chock full of work and you have to turn people down, don't just turn them down. Send them to someone else. Send them to someone else that can take care of their needs that you trust and build your network of your fellow audio professionals. Yes, it's great. We live in a global society and we can, you know, mix in one country and master in another or do tape transfers in one country, et cetera, et cetera. But if you can bring it all home to one area, that really can build a local community that can not only work together, but uh, network together and trade ideas together on a local level. COVID or no COVID, let's just take the COVID out of the equation. So keep it in mind, while you may be tempted to create a studio situation that just covers all your bases, think about specializing in your thing and finding others in your community who specialize in the other things you don't do. And even those who do specialize in the same thing, maybe they do it in a different genre. And, and because there are the graphic elements to things and the visual elements to things, bring in people with visual strengths, people who are great photographers, great graphics people, great video people, great animators. Those people are, while not audio professionals, they too are connected to the creation of, of artwork. And it's almost like being a general contractor, you know? If you know a great plumber, electrician, a tile person, a plaster person, you bring them all into a job to make the job the best it can be, right? That is the ideal. If you can bring that into the audio realm, you've got a community. You've got a crew of people that you can count on. So that's it. Consider creating a better, stronger community. Get everybody involved. So I know it's a cliche, but I leave you with this. A rising tide lifts all boats. Let's lift everybody's boat together if we can. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. 
And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. That's it. Let's get to it. Andy Park here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Andy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, great to have you on. You come to us courtesy of our mutual friend, Daniel Holter. Yes. And I'm glad that he made the recommendation. So we'll dive in. Give me a little bit of your background of, of audio, how it came into your life, where you grew up, and if that had an impact on that. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So I'm, I would say mostly from Tucson, Arizona. As a kid, we grew up moving around the coast for my dad's work, but most of the time I spent down in Tucson. And I was just started playing music at a young age. It's kind of a thing that I just naturally gravitated towards. And the first experience I ever had in a studio was when I was 14. And it was one of those things where we looked in the yellow pages to find a recording studio to record my band, <laughs> my, my high school garage band. And we found the cheapest studio. It was like, I think it was $30 an hour. It was called Lebrec Studios in Tucson, Arizona. I don't know if it still exists, but thank you, David Lebrec. So it made an impact on me. I was really, really excited about it. I couldn't wait to get back into a space like that. There was just something so immediately interesting to me that, well, nothing had been as interesting as that to me at that point in my life. It didn't really fully crystallize until maybe a couple of years later when I started doing job shadowing in high school and they gave me the option to like, if you could do job shadowing anywhere, where would you go? And you know, I was like, well, I probably a recording studio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it didn't go great. First off, I was just talking to some of my friends about this recently. I hadn't really thought about it for a while, but I did like an internship when I was 17 at a different studio in Tucson, and it really kind of turned me off to the recording industry for a while because the people that were running it and the people that they worked with, it was this weird kind of braggadocious kind of ego-driven world that really freaked me out at the time because I was a very idealistic child thinking about being passionate about music and that didn't seem to fit into that world and so I decided not to do it and just kind of do it as a hobby on the side and so I just continued to record my friends bands thinking that it's not a viable course for me which is I think it, it just kept on cycling back to it over and over again so like I went to college I started studying psychology and then one of my friends who had 
played drums in a band that I was in, he said that he was going to go to this school in Phoenix called the Conservatory of Recording Arts and Sciences, and he wanted somebody to go with. <laughs> and I was like kind of a little burnt out on my college courses at that time. And so I was just like, yeah, fuck it. Let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you guys headed down to Phoenix to the conservatory. Yeah. Yeah. So we went to the conservatory and I just dove super head first into it. And yeah, I think that it was one of those things where in those types of schools in retrospect, I wonder how good of an idea they are in the long run, because I don't think there is always a good, I'm trying to find a nice way to say this. Um, <laughs> they don't always let you know how many actual jobs there are in the industry, I think. And from my experience later on working with interns from other schools, I think that the conservatory prepared us more for the reality of working in audio than say like the other unnamed institutions that are really common who might give people the impression that there are hundreds of studios just waiting to hire you. <laughs> just just waiting for those those fresh young interns to give them lots of money. Oh yeah. Studio <laughs> managers are standing by. Yes. <laughs> just just ready to push the button on the paycheck. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was, was it's unfortunately not the case. But that being said, I think that the fact that they started off with analog recording as the front-facing course at that school was really attractive to me, and I really, really loved it. I think I did really, really well there, mostly for my own personal reasons. I was able to finally understand all the things that I had been trying to figure out for so long by doing audio by myself. The funny thing was the record that I had done right before that, my main source of information for recording that record was actually recording for dummies. That was a hundred percent true. It was very useful, but didn't really have the full catalog of information that I was hoping to find. I think I will say this about recording schools. They're definitely not all created equal. And no, of course, you know, you can get out of them whatever the student brings to them or, mm -hmm. you know, their desire. And I think if anything, and this is, of course, being said by somebody who never went to recording school, <laughs> I feel like it gets you up to speed on certain things that you should know. Lingo, signal flow, yeah, order of operations, et cetera, et cetera. Would you agree or disagree with that? I definitely agree, but I also strongly believe that it is completely unnecessary. Hmm. I think that like some of the most talented engineers I've ever met never had any traditional training. They're just on the job or intuitive people. And the longer I do this, the more I realize that it, <laughs> I always think of engineering kind of as a medieval trade, you know, that like, <laughs> yeah, it's like an apprenticeships and everybody's learning from some person that has done it before them. If there is a person that is willing to take on an apprentice. And I think that the higher up I went in the industry, like the more that seemed to be the case. I mean, even just recently down in L.A. talking to some of the assistants at the bigger studios there, I always love to talk to assistants that are there's either career assistants or people who have a goal within a certain world, I guess. And I, I'm just always curious to see what their trajectory is for themselves. And I think that a lot of the people that I talked to, the main goal was to be picked up by like a big producer or mixer engineer and become their 
guy or girl to learn underneath somebody else. That's the ultimate in making it in the Los Angeles recording world. That was my perception anyways. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, having the base knowledge of a school, that's great. That's awesome. But like I said, I think that some of the most creative people and talented engineers that I've heard are really, really untrained. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think that for me personally, like I loved learning all those things in order to have a basis so that I can solve problems. But I don't use those things in my day to day work at all. I don't think about measuring things out or I don't know, just like all the kind of nitty gritty engineering stuff is not appealing to me. I think about things emotionally and from a purely case-to-case -case basis. I like to react rather than to have a base thing that I'm working with. I don't think I've ever mic'd a drum kit the same way twice because I want to leave room for exploration and for accidents and for weird things to happen that are wrong. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of making mistakes. Yes, yes. <laughs> you know, and, and I think that when you life. do, you, you learn the most. And I'll give you a completely like bizarre example of this. The first time, shortly after moving to San Francisco, the first time I had sushi, mm, I went out with dangerous. a group of people I was, I was with <laughs> and they brought the sushi to us. And I, I was a dumb kid. First thing I did was is I took the chopsticks and I grabbed uh, the whole uh. thing of wasabi and said, what's <laughs> this? And I, as I was putting it in my mouth, it was almost like a, a slow motion kind of no moment from the other people with me going, no. And it landed in my mouth and I learned very quickly, oh, you don't eat the whole thing of wasabi in one bite. Yeah, it sticks with you. And I've done the equivalent of the wasabi thing in recording studios. <laughs> yes, yes. I had the benefit of when I moved to Seattle, I had a one track mind about what I was going to do. I wanted to intern at the biggest studio that I could find in Seattle, which at the time was uh, Studio X or Bad Animals. That was like the Los Angeles grade studio that existed up here. And so I just bothered the studio manager, Reed Ruddy, for like two months. <laughs> but very, very respectfully bothered him. And he was very clear and understanding. And he would just be like, well, we have somebody else right now, but call back in two weeks. Two weeks on the dot, I'd call him back. <laughs> and he'd be like, well, actually, you know, another two weeks. Then. Two weeks on the dot, call him back. Finally, I got an internship there. And the engineer that was working there at the time, he had been there for 20 years or something like that. And so he was very set in what he was doing. And even though it was kind of hard on me sometimes to get some of the really intense <laughs> talking to's and lessons about things that I did wrong, I never did those things wrong again after that moment. After the shame and the, I don't know, the uncomfortable feeling of being chastised, it really, really set in. You know, I'm just like, well, okay, I'm not going to wrap that cable that way this <laughs> ever again. <laughs> I'm always going to make sure that mic stand is tightened exactly, not too hard so that you don't need like some pliers to take it off, <laughs> but like hard enough that the microphone's not going to droop, all that kind of stuff. It just kind of internalizes it. And that also makes me think about the caveat of me talking about playing fast and loose with engineering is that I do have a toolbox. There's stuff like that's going on in the back of my brain that I'm not really 
cognitively doing and thinking, but I have that basis of knowledge that the school gave me, which allows me to be fast and I can be faster in my wrong decisions. <laughs> and, and there's more, there's more probability of the wrong decisions making something cool, I guess, maybe. That's my interpretation of it anyways. I, I think that learning the rules so that you can break them in a fun way is really my favorite thing about making music. I want to point out something about something you said. You would be turned down and told, no, give us a call in a couple of weeks. And you mm -hmm. consistently did that. That's kind of a not a common theme amongst my guests, but it is something I have picked up on with a lot of people. Persistence, mm. just, nope, can't hire you today. Okay, great, I'll be back. Yeah. And, you know, and just that whole cycle over and over of constantly knocking on the door, you know, trying to get in and eventually getting in. It's very biblical, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Is it? <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. I just it just it feels like an old story. Oh like yeah, the, like Charles Dickens or something. You know, it's just like come back to me in two yeah. weeks. Yeah, yeah, it's from Matthew twenty four ninety six. That's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the the highest bit rate of the Gospels. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I wanted to ask, why did you choose Seattle? Mm, that's a good question because my school was very against it. They thought I was making a huge mistake. They told me that it's L.A. or Nashville, maybe Chicago, but L.A. or Nashville was like, if you don't go to those places, you're not going to have a career. And I understand what they mean. And especially now I understand what they meant. But for me, I had spent some time in L.A. I lived outside of L.A. when I was a kid and I had visited there. And also I knew a lot of people that had moved there for the film industry from friends that I had growing up. And there was something about it that just kind of felt not me, especially at that time in my life. And I've carried my idealism from what we were talking about earlier, like, you know, what threw me off in that early internship, that kind of idealism about we make music because we're passionate about it, like, and for no other reason. And there's not really this driving force to be a successful this or that or to make a lot of money doing it or anything like that it's just man i just want to make music that i want to listen to and i'm sure anybody could say that and everybody does say it because why else would you go down this road at the end of the day but to me at that time my perception of the los angeles scene felt counter to my own personal drive and there, my perception of the Seattle world was that it was a smaller, more haphazard, more passionate people doing music for music's sake kind of thing. And whether that's accurate or not, I don't really know even at this point. But I think that and there's endless discourse to have about those type of generalizations. I think that they are, by and large, incredibly untrue. <laughs> but, but there are like tiny capsules of situations that reinforce those feelings. And, and I think at the end of the day, I just really liked the city of Seattle. It's very beautiful up here. It really is. And that is inspiring to me. And those are the things that were driving me and, and still do, I think. The nature that surrounds you out here and the rain that drives you inside to make some moody, moody music, you know, because you can't be outside. <laughs> All that stuff really, it pushed me up here. And also, I always really loved a lot of the music that came out of here. There's been so many different iterations of cool music scenes that happened. It's not all 90s grunge, which is such a weird perception because there's been so many 
movements since then with your indie rock movements of the late 90s and early 2000s and your barn folk stuff of the mid 2000s, your hip hop revivals. There's just always cool stuff going on up here. And I still am endlessly surprised to find like, oh, this person lives here. (laughs) Well, tell me about the trajectory of your time in Seattle from assisting to where you're at now. What are the key milestones there? So I got really lucky getting that internship at Studio X with some very measured persistence. And the very first session we were on, it was a Deftones mix session with Terry Date. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think I barely met him because I'm the intern on his first day. So I think they're probably hiding me somewhere. (laughs) But it was instantly felt like I was jumping into like the real world. That was super exciting to me for obvious reasons. So I was kind of hooked from from the beginning with that because I was just like, oh, wow, like I'm in the right place. There's real things are happening here. So I just got the coffee and cleaned the bathrooms, did food runs for a long time. And the assistant that was working at that time really took a liking to me and we became good friends. And then I think it was like six months into that, he decided that he just wanted to completely quit the music industry and become a mountaineer to my benefit. <laughs> just, I mean, thank you, Stefan. But he recommended me and the other intern, whose name is also Andrew, he's an incredibly talented engineer still, to take over for him. And so we got hired as assistants. I had only been there for six months as an intern. And I had, at, up to that point, really even getting that far decided that there was no possibility of making money doing this. I was just like, wow, this is so cool that I'm getting to do this in this real studio with these real things. I'm just going to enjoy it while I can. So the shift to getting paid a very modest amount at that time seemed mind-blowing. I couldn't believe that I was getting paid. You know, I was like, oh my gosh, is this something I could do-do? Like, I still had to keep another job at that time, obviously, because I couldn't survive on just that. Yeah, I was going to ask, were were you surviving... But you had another gig. What was your other gig? I worked at a bookstore. I worked at this this place called Half Price Books. It's a used bookstore, which was great. They were really, really understanding. Because, <laughs> man, as anybody that works in the music industry knows, the hours are very, very unpredictable. So trying to be at the studio as much as I possibly could to be present and to not be the assistant that was out of sight, out of mind. I wanted people to like me. And the way that I think you get people to like you when you're an assistant is to be present, but not too present. (laughs) Invisible, but working in the background constantly to make things happen. So so I did that assistant gig for, I don't know, several years. I don't remember the exact amount of years at this point, but so many wonderful, wonderful records that I got to work on with that. And some I was more involved in than others, just basically based on the producer and the artist, whether they wanted to include me or or invite me into the control room and stuff like that. And the ones that had the biggest impact on me was was making Eddie Vedder's ukulele records. Adam Casper was producing and the house engineer, Sam, was engineering and I was the assistant. And Eddie Vedder specifically took time out of his day every day to spend time with me and invite me in and ask me what I thought. I'm just like, what am I supposed to say? <laughs> just the assistant. But like, but just the, the consideration <laughs> that was given to me by him really made me feel validated. And I was just like, oh, I don't know. There was just something that was really nice for my personal confidence that I'm indebted to him for. 
that just made an impact on me and, and made me feel good about being there, I think. Not that I didn't feel good about being there, but there's just something about being gifted that <laughs> that validation by somebody that you really respect, that, that they care about what you're doing there and that they want your opinion on stuff. It's very, very cool. How long did that gig last at that studio? Oh, I was there for, gosh. I mean, I think I was a full employee there for probably six years, seven years or something like that. So the big change happened during Soundgarden's last record, King Animal. And I, I was an assistant on that. And the engineer had to leave in the middle of the session for health reasons. And so Andrew and I got promoted at that time to become the co-head engineers of the studio, which was insane to me at that time, especially because there had only been one person that had ever had that job for 20 years. And that was kind of like, oh my gosh, well, it's my dream job, being the engineer of this major studio in Seattle and in the middle of a major record. I don't know, very, very consequential to me. I was really, really excited about it. And then the more sessions I did as an engineer there, the more I started connecting with people in the Seattle music scene. And I started getting hired for stuff outside of the studio because people had liked what I had done with them when they had hired just the studio and I was just a house guy. And just kind of like making friends with people. And then there was actually one specific artist that I worked with. It was actually this singer, John Van Dusen from this band, The Lonely Forest, that Chris Walla had brought in. So Chris Walla came into Studio X and that's when I first met him. This was probably 2010. And Chris Walla, of course, for anybody that doesn't know, is from the band Death Cab for Cutie. Formerly, yes. And a really fantastic producer and mixer and engineer. So I'd met the band and I made really good friends with the band. Like they, I was really excited by their music and we were all similar ages and we got along really well. And the lead singer for that band, John Van Dusen, at some point we just were hanging out and he asked me to produce a solo record for him. And he was kind of like the most legit person that had asked me to do anything like that before. It's funny because we made his record and it took several years just for various reasons. But I met so many people in the Seattle music scene through doing that record that I started doing other people's records long before his album came out. So very quickly, within a couple of years of switching over to the engineer job at Studio X, I started to become so busy doing my freelance producing and engineering that I, I ended up having to quit that job. And it was a very soft quit because anytime a cool <laughs> cool gig would come up there, I'd always hope that I was involved in it. You know, when you're in that position, you've got that main gig. What studios are you working out of and how, how do you navigate the politics of that? It's like you met these people at that studio. Was there ever mm -hmm. like a, hey, why are you doing that over at that studio when you met that person here kind of a thing? Is there any pushback from the, the studio about that? No, no. Reed, the studio manager, was always really encouraging of me breaking out. And he'd do his own sessions at other studios. And I think that, to be honest, a lot of this started happening while we were working on the last Dave Matthews Band record, which booked out the studio for like almost two years straight. Oh my God. <laughs> so it was like, even if I wanted to work on projects there, I couldn't. So we would take weekends off 
during that record and I would go to the Hall of Justice or Avast or something like that or other studios in town because it was like a permanent setup. Even though we weren't working on the weekends, obviously we're going to tear everything down. (laughs) So, So that was kind of like during that record, I really started to kind of work at other studios out of necessity. Hmm. And obviously Studio X wasn't going to be upset about it because they're booked forever. (laughs) Where were you at in this stage with external jobs? You'd quit the bookstore at this point, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. I think it was the kind of the catalyst for that one was I just had been whittling down my hours as I started getting more busy at the studio, at the bookstore, (laughs) down more and more to the point, I think it was like, I was working like one day a week there or something. Thank you so much, Half Price Books, because they like kept my health insurance for that entire (sighs) time, even though I was down to like barely any hours. That was like my main reason for keeping that job. So when Obamacare came through, it was only a matter of time. Well, I think it was even before Obamacare, I I think that the legislation was about to pass and I was just like, okay, it's time to go. (laughs) (laughs) And and I think that I had really worn my welcome down with them. Their patience had worn thin with me because I think there was one session that I did with Chance the Rapper and Skrillex that was (laughs) 24 hours straight. (laughs) And and I was supposed to be at work at 8 a.m., and we were still working. We had been working since 10 a.m. the previous day. I had to call them. I was like, I don't know what to tell you. Like, I'm, st- I'm still at my other job. So, <laughs> yeah. I think it was like maybe later that week that I had to quit because I was just like, man, they're going to fire me. <laughs> this is like, this is not, not a uh, maintainable situation. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Sampley, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Sampley.app or Sampley.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. Maybe because I'm just an old man at this point, but I don't know. 24 hours, how do do you really stay focused in a 24-hour session? I think at the end of that, I was definitely not doing my best work. I think like I looked back at that session later (laughs) and I was just like, 
oh my God, I didn't crossfade anything. But Skrillex is, is a wizard in, in the digital world. He definitely made it work. I mean, the song came out, it exists. So <laughs> I'm really glad. Wow. I'm, I'm yawning just thinking about it right now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Ooh. I mean, that that is one thing that I will say. I describe my time at the conservatory as audio boot camp because it was a very short, it's not even like a certificate, like a normal length. It was like eight months or something like that. Really, really short program. But for me, like I went super hard on it because I was also working a job, but I would just not sleep because you had, they, they were open 24 hours. So that was the coolest thing about that, that school was that the studios were open 24 hours. And after a certain point, you could book out any of the rooms. And so because I was working and going to school, the times that I could usually book out the studio would be like midnight to 3 a.m. And so sometimes I just wouldn't sleep. I would just go to my work, go to school, go work in the studio, take a shower, go to work, go to school. I stayed up for 72 hours straight once, and I think I was hallucinating on the way to school the next day, and I was just like, all right, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> but, but I think that just training my brain to stay active even in that sleep deprived state was really useful later on i don't recommend it i don't think it's a good thing and i don't think that that style of working is healthy or actually creative or productive but i think in the early stages of my work when i was purely there to facilitate as an assistant and do more technical engineering it was really useful to have that experience of working under a sleep deprived state <laughs> well, so you're talking to me from a studio now. Is this your personal studio? It is. Yeah. I just finished building it three or four weeks ago. Oh. Yeah. This is a yeah. new thing. Great. It's very, very fresh. <laughs> tell me about, and we'll fill in the gaps a little bit there too, but sure. tell me about the building of this studio, especially in, in a time of COVID. Yes. What was behind the thinking on this? I mean, a lot of it is just that I, I've found myself really wanting this space to be more creative. And as much as I have trained myself over the years to like do it really fast in studios, I always have this desire to really dig in and have all my tools available to me at all times. It gets a little bit old calling the same space echo and rack of gear and guitars and every single time. So just kind of having all my tools in one place, it was really, really exciting. And up until recently, I actually was living in an apartment and it was this old 1915 building that had concrete walls and I mixed a ton of records out of there. And I don't know why it worked, but it did. I mean, I'm pretty sure that like I drove many, many neighbors away, but nobody ever complained. And I think it's because I lived downtown and there was just this expectation of noise perhaps. <laughs> I have a lot of guilt about bothering my neighbors so much, but like I said, I never got any complaints, so I just Maybe kind of kept on rolling. Maybe the concrete it. walls helped? I mean, they must have. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so things kind of lined up that I was able to come full circle. I worked on a Deftones record with Terry Date last year that I engineered with him, and that really kind of helped in the process of padding my income a little bit, which I was very grateful for, in such that I was able to save some money and buy a house, which is something that I had just decided was never going to be possible in Seattle for someone like me. And so something that happened during COVID was that all the 
interest rates on houses and everything like went really low. It's a boring conversation, but it just made it possible. And I have a lot of weird feelings about having good things happen to me when so many bad things are happening, but I'm really grateful for it. And the greatest thing about it is there was the detached building. It was a garage, detached garage. It's 500 square feet. It's enough to make something happen. And so I called everybody that I knew that had worked on building studios, Chris Walla being one of them, and Ed Brooks, I think you've interviewed before. Yep. And them and other producers and engineers that are a lot more knowledgeable about these things than me and got that brain trust together. And I was just like, all right, what's the best use of this small space? How do we make it work? read a bunch of articles about it. I, I tried to sift through the very extreme opinions on gear sluts about sound isolation. <laughs> and the amount of opposite opinions that exist on there is really stunning. And then I discovered that there are so many musicians who are also extremely talented builders. <laughs> so Yeah, there's that. that is, there is that. Speaking of having side gigs and man, I just couldn't have done it without those people. Like it's entirely musicians that built this place. It's so cool. The care that they put into it was really, really incredible. And the craftsmanship and like, you know, and that was kind of what I wanted. I wanted people that had a vested interest in it being good. <laughs> so, and we figured it out together. So it looks like it's a couple ISO rooms and a control room. Is that, is that accurate? That's correct. Yeah, exactly. And the ISO back Behind me to my left here is also an airlock as an entrance. That was kind of a, a Chris Walla idea that I thought was really clever. Just because I am in a neighborhood, and even though I'm not like super close to the houses next to me, I wanted to be able to mix full volume in the middle of the night if I had to, or like have somebody rip on drums in the room here. So, so having like things be fully isolated, we have double walls, six inch gaps, and everything. Between you buying this house and building mm -hmm. this studio and your time at Studio X, you became a full-on freelancer. Yeah. And you've basically spent how many years freelancing and making a living in Seattle as an engineer? It's a great question. I know. I hate math. Yeah, gosh. I would say at this point, probably eight years. And there's a little bit of crossover because I think that, like I said, my freelancing life was supplemented by stuff that showed up at Studio X for a couple of years after I started doing it. But I think that like it really took off about five years ago and that it just really accelerated in a way that I hadn't anticipated and I'm super grateful for. Looking at this from a slightly different angle, how has your work-life balance been maintained or not maintained over the past several years? Do you have a family, relationship, anything like that? <laughs> My work-life balance is, is very bad, to be fair. And that's something that I'm constantly trying to sort out. And I think a lot of people that I've talked to in the industry have the same issue. I think that based on our earlier conversations, the kind of persistence and real extreme drive to make it happen, no matter what, leads you to this kind of feeling that you have to always be running towards the goal. And while it's a really great tactic at the beginning, you can't always be striving towards some unachievable or never ending pie in the sky type of thing. You know, it's like, it's like, I don't know exactly what it is that I'm trying to achieve at this point, except for just to always improve myself, to always be better. And 
while I still very much internalize that philosophy, I always am trying to make myself better. I recognize sometimes that that can be very unhealthy. There is this mental drain of just constantly pushing towards a goal of, you know, wanting to make people more excited about what I'm doing or like make my clients more happy and to get more gigs and to get bigger records. And that just never stops. And I think that the more I paid attention to people that were many, many steps ahead of me thinking, oh, well, once I get to a certain point, I'll be super comfortable and chill and I won't worry about any of these things. And then I would work with somebody who was like major, major, big name, household name producer. And they were just as concerned about everybody else's gig as they were, as I was, you know, and they're in my mind as high as you can get in the game. That really kind of contextualized it for me. I'm just like, man, it very much feels like it's a state of mind. It's a state of mind that you can be content, you can be happy, and you can rest. I think that the feeling of like, if I get off the wheel, that the wheel's going to move on without me mm. is is very tangible, I think. You know, you're going to lose the gig. People are going to forget about you. And, you know, you're going to not have that great momentum that's driven you the entire time. And, and I think that separating what it is that has made me personally successful, is it my work? Is it the, the, the stuff that I've made? I think probably at this point, <laughs> it's not just that I'm available. And I think that that's a mentality that is really hard for me to forget because coming up as an assistant, that really is just driven into you. Like, don't say no, be ready, be ready to do anything at any time. And that's how you make it happen. And to be fair, that's what initially got me where I am. And that fear of not delivering that one time <laughs> and, and it creating some situation where I lose something that could have moved me to the next step really is a driving force, I think. Well, do you think you're successful outside of recording? Mm. Do you think your life outside of music and audio is a successful life? Do you feel good about that? I know I'm getting all Oprah on you. No, no. These are great questions. And I'll interrupt for one brief second, interject this. Yeah. I watch a lot of TV, so I don't know if this really matches up with reality, but you know, I watched a ton of shows about the detective that is like so into the job that they neglect <laughs> the things outside of the job because they're just trying to catch the one criminal or you know solve the case are you yeah. that detective sometimes yeah and over the course of my career it has definitely been a major factor in why a lot of my relationships fell apart but my partner that I bought this house with. She is a video producer. And I think that that was a big attraction to me and, and to her to me <laughs> at the beginning was that we understood each other's work. You just joined up with another detective. That's right. Yeah, that's the secret. <laughs> well, hey, man, whatever works. It does. But that doesn't mean that there isn't still a lot of work to be done and that I don't need to be reminded to step away. She's literally dragged me away from projects before for good reason, not in any type of unhealthy or getting in the way type of thing. It's just she has recognized when I've obsessed about something so much that I'm going down a hole and mm -hmm. and just like, like you need vacation. Just like, let's go somewhere else. There's one that springs into mind specifically. There was a record that there was like a master that was really not doing it. You know, and we we're up to the line on a deadline. 
And I was really stressed out about it because like the master just was not right. And we were out of budget, out of time. And we were about to go to San Diego to visit my brother. <laughs> and she told me that like she, she thought I was going to like get out of the Uber on the way to the airport. <laughs> you know, just like because I, I was just so stressed about it. And then we landed in San Diego. I got a call from the mastering engineer. And then like literally the first place we went from the airport was to a studio in San Diego. I like I called some people so that I could reference the master <laughs> there. <laughs> and she's just like, oh you know, I was at a certain point where like we, we were listening to the master. I was like, ah, oh, it's good. It's cool. I'm, I'm happy. Now. And I just looked back at her and she's just like, yeah. how did we end up in a studio? Like immediately. <laughs> yeah. Can we get the hell out of here, please? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. It's just like you're killing yourself here. So I think there are people in my life, even a lot of my clients, to be fair, because they're wonderful people and they become really close friends and they care about me. They every once in a while just remind me, you know, like, should take a break. Yeah. And I agree. And it's something that I think I can't speak for everybody else, but I think that a lot of my close friends that are producers and engineers have a lot of the same problems that I do. It's just this one track mind obsessive behavior that comes with doing this work because it's not just a job. It never is just a job. When I'm not working on this, I'm just thinking about it. I'm excited by all the things about it. And that's a double-edged sword because it makes it feel fun and exciting and new all the time. But it also means that it's never out of my mind at all. I wanted to ask you, we're almost out of time and I, mm -hmm. I definitely would be remiss if I didn't get this in. You've been doing this a while now and you've been rather successful at it. And as self-admittedly, you've, you've become very obsessive over the years with it. What yeah. is your advice financially to those that are listening? And I don't care if those that are listening are pros or amateurs. Yeah. What have you learned about the business and surviving and the money? Ah, yes. That's a great question. I wouldn't pretend to know a lot about this, but I would say that the fact that I have been able to survive and that I was able to save money and get a house and build a studio is, I'm very proud of that. And I think that it has to, a lot to do with being careful with my money. And it's really challenging, really, really challenging to make a living only off of this because I think that most engineers and producers will relate to the fact that you get paid in big chunks with very long gaps in between. And so planning out your finances can be super difficult because sometimes you don't know when you're going to finish that record and get the second 50% or however you structure your thing. And sometimes you're working with clients who run out of money or they have to figure out a payment plan or they're crowdsourcing something or whatever. It's like you just don't really know when the money's coming or where it's coming from a lot of times. And so being cognizant of that fact and when you get a big paycheck, not going out and like buying a fair child or something, you know, like it's just like <laughs> you, you got to restrain those urges to like go and gear shop as soon as you get your paycheck, because it, it is very attractive as a concept. But I just got paid. Let's go get a fair child. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. OK, what plugins are on sale right now? Right. Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> and I have to say, like, my, my good friend, Sam Rawson, who was my assistant for a long time and then became my engineer and now is his own really up-and-coming producer, we call each other and check on each other constantly. And whenever we're thinking about buying something, we tend to send it to each other, I think. And then if it's like one of those things like, wow, that's like a once-in-a-lifetime deal, then maybe it's a good idea. But frequently, we're just kind of like, do you really need that? Do you actually... Is that going to make your productions any better? Is that going to make that record actually any better? No. It's just like sponsors in AA. It's like, yeah. oh man, I'm thinking about buying. Really? Do you really <laughs> need to do that? Yeah, 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 exactly. And that doesn't mean that you shouldn't get some things that inspire you and make you excited about making music, but you don't need very much. I work with a lot of people that worked with Richard Swift back in over the years, R.I.P., and the thing that I always hear about him that was so cool and inspiring to me is he would just he did all his records with very little. He would have like a 003 or something like that, and that's it. And some dynamic mics and some ribbon mics and a couple fun amps and stuff like that. But it's about your creative choices. It's not about the cool plugin that you got or the expensive microphone that you have. And I think that overarchingly, that's something that I try to check in with myself all the time about. And this also applies to engineering as a whole, I think, that it's so subjective. We get so caught up in this idea that you have to make the best sounding mix, you know, the best sounding record. Like everything has to be a smack in the face about how cool it is. But if you're not serving the song, if you're not like making people love the song, then why are you doing it? I think that it's not about you. <laughs> yeah that's that's the that's the end end of it all i think as an engineer and even as a producer it's not about you and that's that's so important for me to remember and that keeps me from getting too crazy with either what i'm doing on somebody's record or with what i'm buying i think i was talking to ryan gilligan the other day he used to work for michael brower and he said brower would do a thing where like if he didn't grasp on to the emotional elements that he felt were conveying the the best parts of the song right yeah. from within 15 minutes if he didn't have the emotion there he would just pull the faders down and start over mm. when when he was mm. doing a mix if he didn't think the emotion was there he just like no not doing it let's try a different route yeah that's something that just came up yesterday in a session actually the artist that i was working with was saying that i'm just trying to listen to my self to my feelings and he was just explaining that something just didn't feel right. And it was just that his guitar was out of tune or something like that. But it was that you might think it's something else, like you don't like the way the song's turning out or something like that, or, or like where you don't like the drum beat or, or you know, like, oh, my vocal performance isn't working or something like that. No, nope, it was just the guitar was out of tune. And, and I think that those kind of subtle things, those body feelings and intuitions are super powerful and important. And I think that a lot of people get lost in that. That's why going to school sometimes can be bad for that type of thing because instead of thinking about the emotion of a song you're thinking about the frequency spectrum or something or, or the dynamic range of your snare drum or something like that that was one thing that i've come across it many many times since and i've internalized it as a big part of my own plan at this point but that first session that i did with chris walla i remember he asked me to put some mics on a guitar and i put some mics on it on an amp and then we listened back to it and he was just like cool sounds good and i was like well i didn't place them yet and he was like it sounds good we're done that's it yeah exactly <laughs> like, it sounds uh, good it is good yeah exactly and and he didn't even look at it you know like and i was just like 
oh, okay like and, and it they're somewhere in the vicinity <laughs> but like but i think that, that that's if it gets the feeling across that's so much more important than like some fidelity or phase relationship or something like that i think we are at a time if people want to find out more about you where should they go my name when being searched sometimes is challenging because andy park is not like a terribly uncommon name that's why i put the d in there after a while but i think it's just either andyrecording.com or andyparkrecording.com i think all those both work yeah andyparkrecording.com comes right up that's great so let's use that one excellent well, hey, man, it's great to meet you and great to hear about your journey. And yeah, all I could say is, is thank you and take a break. Thank you so much. Yeah. <laughs> and thank you for having me. It's been a really great conversation. I really appreciate your questions. My pleasure. Talk to you later. All right. Thanks. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for, giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Andy Park. Here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. I want to thank the crew, Anne Marie Plo on editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and Chuck Smith there at the beginning of the show with his lovely voice. Leave a review on iTunes, connect with me on LinkedIn, and until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called audio life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com. Check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.